Wait, what was the name of that? What was the name of that DVD that had your three shorts on it? Oh, um, fuck. Bad, bad news. Yeah. Uh, our love is bad news. That's what it was. That's what it was. That's right. <laughs> yep. Awesome. I don't know if I think it's awesome anymore, though. Is it? It's kind of a stupid name, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you saw the films, you'd agree. Yeah. Hi, welcome to Cinemad. Uh, I'm here with Calvin Lee Reader, writer, director, also musician sometimes. Uh, he had, um, I first got to know him because he had three shorts, weird shorts, that played a lot of film festivals called Pile Driver, Little Farm, and um, The Rambler. And then two feature films that played a lot and bothered people quite a bit called <laughs> The Oregonian and The Rambler. Yep. And then... What's funny about all of this is, before all of that stuff, you had made a couple other features. Sure have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But were you making stuff growing up? How did you find your way to uh, making... Cause did you make a feature before you made a short then? Yep. Yeah, we did. Um, but growing up, I, you know, I had the video camera, and we would do the in-camera edits or like try to do like a bit in our living room and then interrupt it with something from that we would tape off of television, you know, like wait for the Vern Funk insurance ad and cut that in, you know, live. And we, we would do our best to experiment with that thing, but mostly we just used the camera to, for skateboarding, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but I never watched a lot of movies, so it wasn't like I was trying to make movies. Uh -huh. It's just like I was trying to put something on that tape. Right. <laughs> and you know, um, when I started... Uh, cinemat as a zine i made this term avant gutter yeah because most of the stuff i was i i purely started it because i couldn't find a lot of interviews and articles about certain films and certain people and what i started to at least i felt like i had to put it together i found that I, a lot of artistic a lot of really artsy stuff but it was kind of dirty messy not clean and yeah. so academics didn't really want to put it in their classes and you wouldn't see it in film schools and stuff like that because it'd be too messy. didn't follow those rules. But then just sort of straight genre stuff that was a little too weird and didn't give you enough. Yeah. that Nobody would talk about that either. So yeah. that's sort of these things. So I think it applies to your stuff pretty much. Yeah, there's a few of us out there. <laughs> there's a few of us. I was thinking of Albert's movie, um, um, Beast Pageant. Did yeah. you see that one? Yeah. That was pretty like good. That That's kind of in there. Yep. And Todd Rohal's earlier stuff is kind of in there. Right. Yeah, there's a few of us doing that. And But so it's interesting that you didn't come to it thinking that uh, that makes it a little more pure, a little yeah. more natural that you weren't like, oh, I saw these movies and I want to be a filmmaker. No, no, no. I hadn't seen any movies. and um, Well, I did see this one movie. I saw Evil Dead. I think I told you about it that one time we were talking about this. I th say it now again because we have microphones. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I went to go see the 
Evil Dead midnight movie and uh there was in, a, in the theater yeah and there was a trailer for the film poltergeist and uh i misread the title as i always do um and i in my mind it said polter christ <laughs> and then uh I, I i got so excited i knew i had a movie um it took us about a year and a half to make that though so your first film is called polter christ yeah uh, I didn't make it alone by any means. It was uh, right. with with Brady Hall, who who I presented him the idea, and he definitely uh, took the wheel. But uh, I was I was a I was the co-director, of Poltergeist. <laughs> yes. How old were you guys? I was about twenty. And then were you were you already playing music at that time? Like what were you? Yeah, what were I you was wasting just, time doing. I, yeah, I was just digging digging ditches and uh, playing music, working construction, and had a shitty band. Yeah, and had nothing to lose. And we started making Poltergeist and uh, shot on 16 millimeter. He had bought the Eclair, um, you know, which is a great camera. They shot Woodstock on it and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the Eclair NPR. And um, every dollar we had went into film. And when you say digging ditches, no, you're really digging. I was digging ditches, yeah. We were digging water lines and shit like that. Were you doing the forklift operating stuff then? No, I wasn't certified yet. That was that was the jerk beast era. Okay. <laughs> 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 so pre, so pre, uh, so so yeah. Maybe we can match your film career with your work career. <laughs> yeah. See how it I goes. Actually, it actually lines up in interesting ways. <laughs> it really does. So what what job were you doing as a teenager? I worked at a golf course, and I was uh, picking really? picking up the balls from the driving range. I was driving the four wheeler that uh, picks mm. up the balls from the people. That seems like fun. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, it's got the cage on it. It's got the cage and like the the ringers will, will, will smash your cage from two hundred yards, and they they do it for fun. They do it for sport. <laughs> Stang, and it, it it it's aggravating, but it's it's impressive that they can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and is that when you were making the uh, the um, editing camera? Yeah, that was. Stuff? I think I think by then I was in high school and I wasn't really doing anything film stuff. Uh, I was just playing music mm-hmm. and going to see a lot of shows and. Just kind of in, engulfed in that world. And which band was that at that time? Uh, we were a band called the River Rats. <laughs> and, and you played around, were you playing around Seattle? Where was it? We, at first, were so bad, we could never get booked in Seattle. So we'd get, we'd get um, booked in eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. And we found there was this really cool punk scene, like, on the verge happening in what, an area they called the Tri-Cities. And uh, we used to always go over there with a band called the Retards, not to be confused with the Retards. Right. And Derek from the Retards was a real, uh, real go-getter, and uh, he'd, he'd set all these things up. And Retards River Rats would do summer tours from like Seattle down to L.A., over to St. Louis, up to Chicago. Mm. And gas was ninety-eight cents, and it was <laughs> like, it was it was easy to do compared to now. Right. And that was you know we didn't we didn't I didn't think about movies at all. I was just working construction and playing in a shitty band. Uh, you're you're 20 and that's when you're doing Poltergeist. Yeah, so I kept this fucking job, uh, <laughs> low-paying construction job in the elements for four years. Oh. I don't know why. I mean, I wasn't digging ditches the whole time. I was building walls, helping the framers, finishing concrete and, and roofing and stuff. And then you could just play in the band when you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I was a day laborer essentially, a glorified day laborer, so I could just go on tour, and 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 come back. And since I knew how to do it they would hire me right back but uh i don't know why i didn't get my shit together for four years i thought that that was like a a good opportunity i'd been handed right so uh 
about halfway into that experience, I started making the film Poltergeist. And were you shooting on film or video then? Film. I only ever shot on film, except for the um, VHS stuff. Back when I was, you know, junior right. high. So that's crazy. So then, like, but you didn't have any film nerdism no. leading up to that? Nothing. I picked up what's called The Stranger, uh, which is like the LA Weekly in Seattle. And I knew I wanted to try to take a film class. One day, it just really, I got a strong inclination to do that. And I found on the back this thing called the Seattle Film Institute. Mm-hmm. And I went... Uh, for two classes and they made it very clear what the difference between film and video was and they used really basic examples this is why the news looks this way and this is why movies look this way which at the time was like a a burning question for me like I didn't know because I didn't know people that knew things like that and I didn't have the internet and uh uh yeah and 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 they I learned to shoot some super 8 I, I took uh, you know, it was one class a week, and I showed up for about two and a half of them, and, and then stopped going. So sort of like here, we should like point this a little bit. Yeah. Hello. So then, oh, it's a little bit like uh, a better version of public access, almost. Yeah, yeah, it was. They had they were they were dedicated to shooting Super 8 there and showing us how that process worked. So that was cool. Mm. So what was Poltergeist on? That was on uh, regular 16, and we shot that on that uh, Eclair NPR. That we also shot a little farm on and stuff. And what's the story? Because oh, oh, nobody's for, oh, seen this movie. <laughs> oh, that's true. Uh, there's a bunch of teenagers at a bowling alley, and that was a big get for us. We got a bowling alley. They let us shoot every Sunday morning for three hours. Nice. For as long as we needed. But we had to get there at like six. We had to be out by nine. <laughs> so we did that for a very long time. Anyway, in this basement of this bowling alley are the ashes of Jesus Christ. And um, we accidentally resurrect him, and he's... He's upset, and he's taken on these sort of vampire tendencies. And he kind of runs amok, and um, at one point we return back to the basement and accidentally resurrect uh, Johnny Appleseed, whose remains just so happen to be down there as well. And there's a lackluster battle between Johnny Appleseed and uh, Jesus Christ, and there is no political statement in there whatsoever. It was just (laughs) what we could think of, you know. And uh, is it all in the bowling alley or some of it's outside? Uh, ostensibly, it's all in the bowling alley, but we, we ended up faking a lot of uh, basements and shit for people's basements. Right. And that was that movie. And it's bad. Ooh, it's bad. But we cut the whole thing on hand, <laughs> uh, by hand on a steam back. And, right. and that, that was, you know, people who romanticize that have just probably not done it. Or, if, you know. I don't. Maybe they, maybe they have. It's it's not cool. I don't know. Some people just got into it, but it's not fun, and you lose one frame, and that's really this terrible cliche that screws you. I know. I mean, I still got a bunch of negative cutter buddies, and they fucking they hate it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a gig. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I got a couple negative cutter, but I don't have like a bunch of negative cutter. <laughs> I got a couple. Uh-huh. I think if there, if there's no other way, then you just deal with it and you get the best you can. But yeah. like today, like knowing that there's a faster way and an easier way. Oh yeah, it seems sad. It, I do feel happy that you know Poltergeist never touched a computer. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, I mean, we didn't finish on film, but we had the film transferred to VHS, and then we wired in. I think well Brady, Brady. When I say we, anything technical is all Brady. Uh-huh. He, he wired in the sound, which was a you know off of a dat, because the, the VHS transfer was a silent situation. Like, oh, the yeah. whole movie just yeah. silent. And then he wired it in. 
And then did it show anywhere? Yeah, it showed at um, the Seattle Art Museum to nobody. It uh, played the Northwest Film Forum. Uh-huh. Actually, it just played the Northwest Film Forum about two years ago. Oh, as, really? as like a weird retrospective thing. We took uh-huh. it to New York to this place called uh, Cinema Classics. Do you remember that little theater? Yeah. It was I never also went. known as Rafifi. Mm-hmm. We, we, we went all the way out there to show it, and we apparently didn't talk to the right guy, but like totally paid for it. It was like a $100 rental or something. Mm-hmm. Paid for it and all that. And then the guy who owned the place was like, What are you guys doing? He came in halfway through the screening. And we're like, Well, we rented the place from blah, blah, blah. And he had no awareness of this <laughs> and we came all the way from seattle to new york to show our movie to 17 people did he stop it or no no he was cool ultimately but he was like you got to tell me next time we're like we will give us your number for next time <laughs> and then we did and the next movie we showed there again so the, but people did you got 17 people yeah brady did right. through his internet friends right, right. <laughs> how did you meet brady was that the film institute or just around uh it was a mutual friend from childhood mm-hmm. and uh I, I the two of you knew each other uh, well, we didn't know each guy. other. We knew my, my buddy Nathan Conrad, who I used to you know, hang around a lot, knew Brady, and I'd always heard the name Brady Hall, and uh, I never met him. And then uh, uh, I, I found out he had that camera, and I wanted to see if he wanted to be a part of this. When I met him, he had a really long beard and really long hair. He's kind of a good-looking guy, so uh, there's Jesus. Oh, so he played him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who played Johnny Appleseed? Uh, our buddy Brian Wendorf. You did great. <laughs> Wait, from Chicago? Uh, no. Or a different one? Different one. How could there be two? How could there be two? Then, um, so it's still crazy. You saw Evil Dead and you thought, I should make a film. I saw the trailer, the trailer of, before yeah. I saw Evil Dead. And you're like, I should do that. Yeah, it was the trailer of, yeah, Poltergeist. But were you doing anything else visual, like photography or painting or anything? No. No, just playing the bass and being dirty. <laughs> <laughs> So that okay, let's move uh, down to the work resume then. So after you did Poltergeist, Poltergeist, yeah. What was your next job after digging ditches? Uh, I had uh, I got a I got a job driving a forklift, and I wasn't certified. What I found out was I there was some strings pulled by Mm -hmm. my stepmother's sister who just called me out of the blue to ask if I wanted a job as a forklift driver because she knew the guy, Uh and I was like, cool. So I. I did, and it was my first sort of indoor job, which was kind of cool because it was half indoor, half outdoor. Mm-hmm. And in Seattle, that, that means something. It sucks to work outside in the rain. Anyway, I learned to get the I – got, I got my certified in like a week, so it wasn't like a big deal. It's just like a driving thing, like the way you get something for your car? Yeah, yeah. you you got to pass the test and learn how to, you know, use the forks and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's not rocket science by any means. <laughs> it's just a little foreign feeling at first. What was the place like? What kind of stuff were you moving, or did you even know what you were moving? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was every single thing from the lower forty-eight that was going to Kodiak, Alaska. Really? We were called Southern Alaska Forwarding, and then um, also everything that was going to the island of Cordova. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we just loaded the trucks. Everything, for, a lot of fishing gear, but we'd get everything from lipstick to gas masks to chicken nuggets. You name it, anything Crazy. anything from the lower 48 that was going to Kodiak. Because it, would it say in the boxes what it was? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, we had our, I mean, a lot of fishermen would come down. One time a fisherman, uh, he he blew a bunch of dough on this new Harley, and he didn't package it or anything. He just threw me the keys, you know, to, like, load it up in the can, and I had never driven a motorcycle. 
<laughs> <laughs> so I fucking got on it and dumped it right away. He wasn't there, but the Walmart right. driver showed up right when that happened. And luckily he was like a biker and he's like, man, you got to, I, I need to help you. <laughs> and then like, he showed me how to ride the, you know, finally got it into the um, warehouse and then I locked it up and shipped it. But yeah, well, it, <laughs> the exhaust kind of got fucked up. Oh man, that's trippy. So then yeah. the whole, the whole gig's just moving stuff, right? Yeah. Just, we get uh, people, uh, sending and receiving. It's like shipping and receiving. Yeah, just people yeah. on one end would just drop off shit and we would load them in our trucks and then a guy would drive that truck to the harbor and then that would float up to Kodiak. And so would you go crazy from monotony or would you find, would there always be something weird happening to entertain you? Uh, I went crazy because it felt like a prison in there. It was mm. just like, it looked like a jail. It was just, I, mean, I, I mean, I think every job I've ever had has a degree of monotony because I've never had like a career job. Everything has been, you know, mm-hmm. little little jobs right <laughs> and so then once you start um forklifting or is that when jerk beast started yeah uh and and it's funny i mentioned public access i didn't mean that as a foreshadow yeah because that's when it happened because poltergeist was such a such a difficult experience and we realized it was so hard and we were so untalented that we didn't know if making a movie was something we should ever do again so we decided to do a, a public access show. It seemed like, okay, well, we can we can definitely do that. <laughs> but toward the end of Jerk Beast, I'm sorry, toward the end of uh, Poltergeist, mm-hmm. there was this pile of garbage in, in in Brady's front room that slowly became what would be the head of the monster known as Jerk Beast. And then he informed us that it was going to be this public access show, and uh, we were all supposed to host it and. And so Brady was sort of making this head on his own. Oh yeah, he he thought of the whole thing, <laughs> and it, and uh, he did great. And we we just committed ourselves to this show, and some people around town started knowing who we are. People were interviewing the Jerk Beast on like the local radio stations, and there was right. a lot of listeners. So. What was the, Were there other public access shows you were watching for inspiration? Um, or just sort of something that was on? There was interesting stuff. You like the Goddess Kringen was an interesting gal. There was uh, TJ, the porn guy. Oh wait, so yeah, so so you decided to start a show. You just is it the the cliche? You just walked in and you're like, "Hey man, we want a show." Yeah, you got to take a uh, like a two hour course to shows you how to use it, and then um, Green Valley Switcher. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, and then um, and but they were like, uh, they don't care about content. You're like pretty pretty free free and clear. Well, they don't allow open flame. We found that out. <laughs> And their their rules of obscenity are really weird. Uh, past, yeah. um, I think it's 10 p.m. If you're showing pornography, you can show penetration, but you can't show things coming out. Wow. So if something's coming out of your body, that crosses the line of obscene uh. in the in the. Um, Yeah. So what what's a um what 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 a what would a classic jerk beast episode consist of? Uh, we would field calls. We were kind of like a talk show. Um, mm-hmm. we had Jerk Beast in the center, and he's a big red monster with a sort of Billy Idol haircut. Um, and then I would sit next to him, and then Brian would sit in one of those floating bubbles because what he was actually doing was operating the the call board. Mm-hmm. So there was a you know a camera B that had him in a circle, and we would just take calls from people and just exchange insults, and that's it. <laughs> But Jerk Beast was so good at it, you know, I was not. I was just 
I was a spaz, you know, and I guess that kind of worked. But uh, Jerk Beast was, he was incredible to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and people like you get a lot of calls. Oh man, it was jammed the whole time. I, I don't remember a time when there was a dead space for anything other than like a uh, technical problem. It was it, we got really popular. How did that lead into a film, or would you, or is it a film? What is it? Yeah, the. Uh, it led into a film because we had done six months of this show and people liked us and were like starting to recognize me because I was not in a costume. Mm-hmm. Like at shows I was playing because I was playing in Popular Shapes by then. Yeah. And so so you were so yeah you were in the band of Popular Shapes and then but what would people what would they say if they saw you? Oh, they would they would call me Sweet Benny, which was my alter ego from the Public Access show. <laughs> it's a good name. Yeah. And uh, what is that? Is that from anything? Or you just no, I think it was just some stupid thing we said. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then the band we were in was kind of popular at the time, so a lot of people listened to the band and yeah, and, and were aware of Jerkbeast. But most of our Jerkbeast following was just people from the suburbs watching <laughs> late night, you know, public access. So then, yeah, because then, so somehow you guys got your confidence back to get back in the film game. <laughs> yeah, we thought we had a following. It's like, well, we got something. We really got something here. Uh-huh. And we borrowed Megan Griffith's camera to do this one. She had a super 16 millimeter. We thought, well, up the game aesthetically. We got a, a real focused uh, thing. <laughs> and we made Jerk Beast. And we had computer editing by then. So would that get shot on? Uh, that was on a, a super 16. Super 16 camera, okay. Yeah. And, um, and we were starting to make really good friends with the people at the lab at that point, at Alpha Cine. Right, Seattle. So we got some good uh, discounts and some, mm-hmm. you know, things we didn't necessarily have to pay for, and everything started coming together. And we're thinking, yeah, we can't miss with Jerk Beast. And um, when we finished it, we showed wait, it. Wait, what? What? What's the plot? Oh, so it's well, <laughs> it's kind of sticky. Uh, like well, you can't say, or it's just no. Not really it's a it's plot. it's hard to yeah. It's like okay, so Jerk Beast. Um, for whatever reason, wants to start a public access show. So it's kind of an origin story of how he meets me and, and, and Marty, the other guy. And he sort of abuses us into being his co-hosts of this public access show. Mm. And um, then he decides the public access show isn't enough, so we need to start a rock and roll band. So we do. We start this band called Blood Butt. And then we change the name to Anus Pussy. And then we change the name to... Amanda fuck stab in the tremendous feces machine, and then we end on um, steaming wolf penis. That ends up being the name of the of the band, right? And in the we it ends up kind of being this Spinal Tap noodle, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, and that's kind of the the story there. Uh, and it, you know, we put a lot of effort and a lot of thought into it, and then <laughs> it sounds like it. by the time uh, we premiered it at a festival called Local Sightings in Northwest, uh, I realized we had made a movie that was even worse than Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> what did people do? In the, did you sit in the first screening? I did, and they were laughing because it is, it is not unentertaining. It's just, it's fucking punishment, though. It's like, it's poorly made, and it takes the right type of person to laugh at it. But it's not completely without value. It's just right. really bad. <laughs> And, uh, Did you think it looked good when you saw it on the screen? Like, were you thinking about a visual language at that point? Mm-hmm. Just yeah. unfortunately, like we would, 
honestly we would dp it a lot like because i would act in it and jerkbees would act in it and i shot most of it because he was always in the goddamn suit mm-hmm. and a lot of scenes i'm in and we didn't have money for coverage so like i would just you know line up the shot hit the start button uh put a jacket over the viewfinder so the light would get in and then just jump on my mark and do our thing mm-hmm. and and then maybe roll through two takes of it while the camera was rolling and being hyper aware of how much money we're wasting and then we jump around doing that and given that we had no experience in acting other than poltergeist there's no way to pull off a good performance under that type of stress yeah, while yeah. you're just w- trying to get the shot and trying to you know conserve film and, and it was funny so brady is the was the technical guy yeah and so you put him in the suit. Yeah. <laughs> even though anyone could have been in that suit. No. He's the only one. Ah, he's the okay. only one. He animates it best. His, <laughs> him just living it. He's, I can't say enough good things about him. As the jer- <laughs> like the Jerk Beast experience overall was a failure, but the Jerk Beast himself is still so special. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then not to segue into the future, but as a side note, this band actually has kind of a weird following too. <laughs> Yeah, steaming wolf penis. Yeah, so we found distribution for this film, which was a big step forward from from Poltergeist. We found a local or a U.S. one through Film Threat. Mm-hmm. They were doing a DVD deal. I know the Zellner brothers did some stuff at the time. Yeah. A movie called Frontier, and Megan Griffiths did one at the time, and she's mm. the one who told me about it. Mm. She was making a movie called First Aid for Choking. Right. And um, and, and she it said, was just DVD. Yeah, just DVD. Mm-hmm. But at the time, that was a big deal because they yeah. could get us on Netflix. Right. Netflix rental. And that was <laughs> early Netflix, so that was huge. And so Jerk Beast went straight to Netflix. It did. That's no. amazing. Well, Brady actually did a little theatrical tour with it. Mm-hmm. He got in his car, and he, did, he actually did push pretty hard. I didn't join him on that. <laughs> but he really did work hard for that. The uh, Netflix kind of used to be like public access because yeah. they were trying to get just anything. Yeah. And then you could just watch anything, and now it's unfortunately so much more selective. And well, that's for the streaming stuff. I think yeah. that people oh, people right, gotta right. watch watch that streaming stuff because it's kind of mind control at this point. Mm-hmm. They they select what they want to watch, and and they're going pretty mainstream. So uh, people should keep that disc part of the Netflix alive, yeah, because that's really a lot of good stuff still. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. So that so so you but you didn't lose all your confidence making Jerk Beast. Um, I kind of did. Yeah, <laughs> it was really bad. It was really bad. Because um, then, what? Like, how old are you at this point? Twenty three. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, twenty three. Um, but then you still had the band, so the, stuff was happening. The band was going pretty well. Popular Shapes had just made that record, and we were doing some touring. Mm-hmm. And that was fun. Um, and then, yeah, the Steaming Wolf Penis started to get a following based on on the on the release of the movie and then the DVD release yeah oh, and then we um started playing live and then we played live enough times to where people were pretty much unaware there was a movie and they <laughs> thought we were just a band and that happened again when the film was released in England uh-huh they brought steaming wolf penis out to play a bunch and we tried to do some kind of press tour but no one gave a fuck about the movie but when we played everybody was like whoa what the fuck is this and we had uh, one show where we had the new Leatherface guy, you know the guy oh, yeah. from the, the guy, guy playing it. Yeah, the guy from the program. Remember that movie? Yeah, that yeah. big old football player who like right. putting the steroids in his butt. Like <laughs> he he came out to one of the shows in England, and and he was there with uh, the the guy who played the very first Jason what? on Friday Thirteenth. Yeah. So they know each other. 
they know each other because they were at um, this event called Memorabilia, which is oh, kind of like sure. a Comic-Con down here. Yeah. And that was our, our distributor's way of getting um, a movie out. And it was right. weird. We got to meet uh, Mick Foley, the, the wrestler. Is that his oh, name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mankind. Uh, yeah, he was there. Uh, he didn't go to the show, but like he came and checked out like Jerk Beast and all this kind of stuff. We, <laughs> we were sitting right next to Lou Ferrigno. He didn't want anything to do with us. But oh, that's too bad. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, but, so we, yeah, we played these shows and like yeah. guys like that would show up and we played some like Misfits cover with Andrew from Texas Chainsaw and Ari from the fucking Friday Thirteenth. There's video of it somewhere of us playing with these guys. Wow. Yeah. So people just thought we were this like weird horror band because we played some misfit covers with those guys from the horror movies and we had a monster for a drummer Wait, that's insane yeah so what what were they playing were they just singing oh yeah we played and they just yeah. they were just there and they're like can you play die 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 my darling and they knew the misfits well they requested they the that we'd play it crazy yeah because ari the guy from friday the 13th has a punk band called first jason and he's just <laughs> yeah i didn't know that yeah that is awesome yeah we tried to get some shows with them in in town it just didn't work because we gave up. Um, mm. Steaming Wolf Penis was booked officially at South by Southwest. Wow. Yeah. As a band. As a band. The movie would never play, but <laughs> Beerland used to play the movie on the sly during uh, the film festival, which was really fucking cool. Yeah. So we got these like cool screenings during the South by Southwest film festival, and then they invited us out to play at Beerland. And we played That's with awesome. great bands. We played with Jay. Mm-hmm. Jay Retard, and then um, we played with White Savage, the guys from the um, tirades, yeah. or John, Jimmy Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the guys, you know, from the Spits were always there, and uh, mm-hmm. who you knew from Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so we played like a bunch of shows. And um, funny thing is, uh, Katie from the Vivian Girls, uh-huh. before the Vivian Girls started, was our number one fan, and was our fucking roadie that whole. <laughs> she, she was living down there, and she was a, a friend of Brady's, but loved the new Steaming Wolf Penis record. That's right. There was two. She loved the new one, and she wanted just to be our roadie, and she really kept us together that whole fucking trip that we ended up breaking up wow. the band five minutes after our final show. Right. Yeah, that was, that was cool. Um, in a weird way, I think that that was my most successful band at the moment, because I, <laughs> yeah, that was at, at that time. Oh, the, the the UK fandom is interesting. You, yeah. There is a big horror scene, though. Is it just from that? It it could be. The funny thing is, Jerkbeast, there's nothing horror about it. It's just straight yeah, comedy with a monster. Like, like cult movie. Yeah, yeah, monster movie. He's not, he's just, yeah. Yeah. Because, like, not that they don't, I mean, the horror fans are, they stick yeah. to the genre, but they'll let, they'll let cool, weird things come into it. Yeah. Come into the shelves. There's there's something cool about Jerk Beast. It's just not any good. <laughs> <laughs> Have you watched it lately? I did, and it's really hard to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then, okay, so that's interesting that that, that again didn't um, just wipe out all your confidence. It, well, it, it did. It did. And then uh, I just kind of lived out the popular shapes thing. We did those tours. Nicholas moved to San Francisco. We broke up that band. But before that band broke up, me and Nicholas mm-hmm. joined the Intelligence who were um, doing a little better than the Shapes. They yeah. had the In the Red deal and stuff. Or they didn't have that yet, but they had a really great record out uh, called Tour and Terror. And touring a lot. Yeah, touring more than we were. But sometimes we would tour with them also. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, Boredom and Terror was, was our favorite record. And then when Lars asked me and Nicholas to be in the band, it was like 
cool, but we had this obstacle that Nicholas lived in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So we would mostly just play Seattle and Portland and then just go pick up Nicholas Blues Brothers style, like no practice, uh-huh. and just practice down the, the road and play a few shows in San Francisco and then whatever it took. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually at the time we were on Narnak out in New York, so that was weird too because we'd have to fly out to New York to start a lot of our tours to get any money. Mm-hmm. You had to go meet the guy right. and then get the van and then we kind of drive west from New York, play New York and blah, 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 all the way to like say Detroit and then all points in between and on back and then we'd fly home. Mm-hmm. And then when we got on in the red, it was a west, more of a West Coast affair. Mm. Or Europe. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. And then, and so, but then why did you end up going back and making Piledriver? Was that the next one? Oh, you know, it wasn't. Oh, wait, um, sorry, sorry. I, I forgot the, the resume. Are you still <laughs> forklifting at this point? Got a job at the film lab. At Alpha Cine. Got a job at the film lab. Right. And uh, there and was. That's, so that's post Jerk Beast, <laughs> but before you did Piledriver. Yes, that's exactly where this is. And I and I got the job at the film lab, the film the job I always wanted while making films. But by the time I got there I had no desire to make films. I was so fucking burnt out. I made these two feature films, you know, I thought I had something to contribute, but no one cared. Even though we had weird success with Jerk Beast. Right. And a lot of that was kind of ongoing into the future, by the way. So that I that gave the that was Jerk Beast lasted many years. Crazy. Yeah, a lot of the overlap a lot of the things I said overlap more current stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the actual making of the films, yeah, that, that wiped me out. I couldn't do it. But then, like... Um, what was your job at Alpha Center? Uh, I would I would run uh, some 16-color paws uh, processing. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a deal with Mattel, and we made all their Viewmasters. Oh, yeah. And that's all shot on Super 16. So me and Megan Griffiths would run the Super 16 cameras upstairs and mm-hmm. bring them all down to the 16-millimeter color pause, and sometimes I would process it. And then there was an editing room mm-hmm. where you essentially would just cut all the images into reels left, right, and ship them off to Mattel. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then we would mount trailers for Sundance or for uh, South mm-hmm. By or Palm Pictures or whatever. So mostly running machines that are yeah. developing film. and Yeah, shooting camera and that kind of yeah. thing. Or, or just running the moviola with the, um, with the gas pedal, you know. So would, they, so would Viewmaster send you finished images? We would make the, we would make the first prototype because we, we, um, mm-hmm. we, we were equipped to do a short run. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't do thousands. We could do hundreds. Oh, okay. So, Viewmaster, if they were going to make like Little Mermaid or something, mm-hmm. we, we would we would shoot all the film, which could be you know so many thousands of feet. Right. And then they would put those together. It's so it, just like filming a, a still image, though. Yeah, it's exactly okay. what it is. You shoot sometimes two thousand feet of a fucking still image. <laughs> right, because every frame is. Yeah. I never shot two thousand of one, but like you can shoot so many. Yeah, they have two. But one roll a thousand feet, right? They Was made it? special rolls for us. Uh, the motherfucker who made IMAX, the guy um, Marty um, mm-hmm. Marty Mueller, is that his name? I forget. He invented our cameras. Wow! And they had two thousand foot magazines, and Kodak sent us special rolls. Wow, just for Viewmaster. Yeah, and, and Marty, the guy who invented IMAX, would come in and tinker on me and Megan's like cameras. That's great. It's like, there's like a Hall of Famer <laughs> right there. Right, right. Twisting a wrench right next to us. 
It's crazy. He was probably just a regular dude, though. He right? was. He yeah. was totally a regular dude. Just making stuff. Yeah. Awesome. So what's funny is you went from the literal construction and digging ditches to just being a ditch digger in the film world of the the film world. Yeah. (laughs) Shooting the most mundane possible stuff. Yeah. And processing. Yeah. (laughs) Did you get to, while you were there, did you get to learn about coloring though? And exposure? Uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely that comes with the territory, but mostly Mm -hmm. what I got to see was these amazing experimental films we had in the vault people mm-hmm. who just worked at Alpha Cine who had this like artistic bent that I didn't even know you could do. Oh, really? Yeah, like and one of them, the most important one was Ryan Adams. Right. Who ended up shooting um Little Farm, The Rambler Short in the Oregonian. He was making these great short films with a fellow named John Bar- John Barons. Mhm. And they had a little bit of a following and um mm-hmm. I thought it was really cool. So I started He was working there too. Yeah, he was yeah. he was the color timer. Mhm. So, yeah, I got to be friends with him, and we eventually right. made some films. But, yeah, really what happened was, do you remember the band The Holy Ghost Revival? Mm-hmm. They, a little bit, yeah. They used to, like, uh, well, they invented this character on the road called the Butt Cutter. <laughs> I don't remember that. Well, yeah, I mean, it was just something they would talk about. Oh, okay. This guy, the Butt Cutter, he cut his butt at people. and <laughs> And I thought it was really hilarious. It was this guy, you know, Andrew goes by Sterling now. He uh, he he would make this like really vivid gestures with his body of a guy cutting his butt and laughing about it. And then one mm-hmm. day, uh, I just wanted to make a short film about that guy, <laughs> right? That they had invented. And uh, this fellow Bruno, who worked at Alpha Cine, gave us a camera that he had gotten from I guess Panasonic, and it was the first one to ever shoot 24p. Oh, wow. He, it was loaned to him because he was like a respected tech guy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why don't you guys do something weird with this? So huh. then I decided to write the practical butt cutter. <laughs> and it was... Right. It was, right. Yeah. And I, and I got the guys from Holy Ghost, and we shot this movie. And, uh, Just it, a short? Yeah, it played nowhere, but it was the yeah. first thing I'd sort of directed without um, uh-huh. kind of hiding in Brady's shadow. I think I, I might have been a little timid before. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I wrote this, I directed it. Brady was definitely there and maybe even co-directed it. But it was like, that yeah. was the one. Uh-huh. That was the one. I was like, oh, I can do this. This is funny. This is, this is bad, but it's better than everything else. I can totally do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, and, then, um, and then that led to Pile Driver, or did you just do a bunch of shorts? Uh, that was just a thing I had, and I was taking it. I'd honestly brought a DVD and brought it with me on the road. Every place we stayed, I'd play it for somebody in Sacramento oh, or cool. fucking Brooklyn or whatever. I'd yeah. put it on, and people would love it. I remember it was, uh-huh. yeah, people in Philadelphia. Somehow I didn't even know them got a copy of it. and They were like, what's this practical butt cutter, man? <laughs> uh, so that was kind of cool. And then I remember we were in Berkeley, and mm-hmm. we went and saw the film Garden State you know, cause we had a day off mm. and that was a rough one. And then in my mind, I had formulated the short film pile driver during that as a sort of response to my experience watching that film. Right. And then that's kind of how that got started. Yeah. Cause it's kind of an anti-relationship movie. Yeah. Pile driver. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, sometimes relationship movies are rough. I mean, yeah, it depends on how many relationships you've been in, in your life. If it's, if it feels like a place 
Do you want to go? Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I, I I don't need to go. <laughs> <laughs> Some. Yeah. Some of them. A few. Yeah. And then, uh, so then, and that's the first time you're working with Lindsay too. Yeah, I met her in an acting class in Seattle. And you you decided to take an acting class. I did. To see what it was like. To meet actors. Yeah. To meet actors. I remember I was really embarrassed to tell my friends as I was doing that. <laughs> but it's a great idea. I know. But the, the the worlds just don't really cross, you know, in like the, I guess the scene I was in, the sort of garage scene, punk scene. Mm-hmm. People wouldn't understand why I was going to take an acting class. <laughs> but I remember Dwyer was excited about it, so that gave me like confidence. Like, yeah, I'll do that. Right. John Dwyer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, but did you think it would help you with like directing and talking to actors too? I don't know. Yeah, because that's what a lot of people get into that, which is a pretty good idea. And it's funny because uh, otherwise, why? Are you, what, what kind of class are you supposed to take? People, too, too many people are just like, oh, I saw what Tarantino made. Mm-hmm. I want to be a director too. Not knowing, by the way, when you're on set, you're going to be talking to hundreds of people. And yeah. some of them are going to be on screen and can make your movie good or bad. Ooh, so true. So how are you supposed to learn to do that? I don't think you learn to do that. I think it's all just you have an idea and you do your best to take care of it like it's a fragile little egg. And there's a there's the mm. first stage of that and that's breaking down the language barrier between idea and word and that happens in the sort of screenwriting process mm. and you got to get as much of that idea that was so pure into those pages and it will never be as good as the thought in your head. But if it didn't degradate to the point of wanting to give up then you still got a show <laughs> and then you figure out what kind of budget you get and then you figure out what kind of production you can get and i just think it's all about carrying that fragile little object and if you really give a shit about it you'll tell the actors the right thing if that's what your motive is that's what i believe i don't think you can learn it mm-hmm. i do believe it's good to limit the amount of words you say to an actor <laughs> uh, well and when you're dealing with like half artsy stuff and half genre you know yeah. gore expectations yeah i mean are you letting the actors well when you were doing the shorts would you just kind of let them do suggest things well you know i i uh was in those shorts yeah so i knew i, I could sort of be the ringleader of all that and i tried uh-huh. to level a lot of the worst gore punishment against myself because I knew I wouldn't complain. But you, you, I mean, you've told me before, it wasn't because you wanted to be an actor. No, I just knew that I could probably do the minimum of what's acceptable at this point (laughs) after doing all the stuff that I had already done. Uh I had learned enough, and then um, I won't complain about being vomited on or or anything like that. Right. Because it's my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel okay doing it because you had been on stage a lot? At that point, just playing in front of people, that's not easy either. And I think that there is something about that. Yeah, there's, there's mm. a, there you get a little more casual after you've had that experience. After yeah. maybe being on the public access and being berated as much as I have. And oh, right. Playing that's so true. many empty rooms. and <laughs> yeah. In films and in music. Yep. Yeah, because yeah. it's definitely, that's the other thing. Like, well, I mean, some people obviously are just born to do it or aren't bothered by it, but mm-hmm. there's no real reason you should be able to do that. It's not natural. You you just, you just at one point you just kind of stop being worried about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. 
<laughs> and then so the but also like so all three of these shorts because there's a little farm after that and the rambler i think they like grow in style and they grow in story yeah did you just feel better because once you showed something to an audience were you ever thinking about the audience expectation oh yeah for a uh, pile driver i just wanted to turn their expectation on its ear mm-hmm. i have been sort of disgusted with what's called indie film you know Mm-hmm. for a long time and that doesn't include all of them sure. but you know the ones that are commercial indie i'd say garden state is a prime example um and the audience goes in with an expectation there and i in a very basic level i just wanted to turn that on its head i figured like oh people love a relationship movie mm-hmm. let's make them feel something a little different mm-hmm. and then and that also came with uh a little farm you know, I wanted to make a different type of relationship movie, but not like, okay, here's my one idea where they have incest sex. Right. It's like, that's just my first idea, and then the rest of the shit's going to happen. Right. Um, and then The Rambler's a real noodle, you know, a real odyssey story, and, that, and that's become my favorite type of film. Right. Yeah. And then, so when, uh, when these are playing... Uh, at festivals did you get the kind of reaction or weird reaction that you wanted to because nobody no matter how savvy the film crowd is you're not going to get one reaction yeah out of if you have 100 people definitely won't get one and i gotta say in pile driver when we premiered it at the one real film festival that was the biggest reaction i've ever had ever Mm -hmm. it was like there's a moment in the film that is is really uh, momentum changing and uh, the entire audience just gasped, and it was it was like a four or five hundred seater, and everybody was there, and everybody shrieked, and it was amazing. Right. It was amazing. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And with a short film, people don't really contemplate it as much. It just kind of happens, and then the next one plays, and <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So with the shorts, it's interesting because you were you you probably were in a lot of genre shorts, like a like a yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you got one crowd. Then did you, you could probably feel the difference between that and if you were just in a shorts program and you were the only weird horror film. Yeah. Yeah, I felt that for sure. Because we play great film festivals like your Cine Vegas for Little Farm in particular. And then we meet James from the Dallas Film Festival. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been a friend ever since that day. And um, I can tell the audiences in Dallas are uh, a little different. Yeah. But their short film programming is great. That's mm-hmm. not a very good example of where they put me in a weird program. But like, I remember like the Silver Lake Film Festival put us in a super weird one mm-hmm. with like sentimental ass short filmmaking, and then like, yeah. here's Little Farm. <laughs> I actually do like representing that like wheel hitting the rock, <laughs> and you're like, right. uh, I do, I do like that. But uh, it's it's weird because you're, mm-hmm. you know, it's just weird. And then did you find did you find working with Ryan then just sort of helped make a little bit more of a visual language? Oh Cause hell the, yeah! Because I don't want to put pile driver down, but <laughs> Megan Griffith seems, shot that. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. see now I feel bad because she's awesome. No, I think, here, here. Okay, yeah. here we'll we'll back. I'll leave all that in <laughs> so I don't seem like I'm editing out only when I sound like an, an idiot. Um, if I can remember back and think about when I saw all of them in a row. <laughs> Piledriver looks like a film like any film. It's stiff. But it's, it's still, it's, it's not bad. It's a little more traditional. Yep. 
stiffer. We didn't uh, know Megan how Megan to... is so nice, too, and very talented, so I don't want to make it sound like... She wouldn't. <laughs> her and I, uh, I think, disagreed on a lot of things, and she was right about most of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some shots I, I demanded we get, and I look back, and I'm thinking, like, what the fuck was I thinking? She was totally right. <laughs> but you were making your way onto this other visual style, because... Yeah. It's it's a pretty big leap to a lot more colors. Maybe it just had more lights or shot during the daytime or something. But yeah. there's definitely there's just suddenly there's textures. Yeah. The beginning of Pile Driver had that. We had uh mm-hmm. that bright brick building with that amazing looking right. sky and it was all intended to bring out those colors and mm-hmm. and then it kind of fell off. It didn't it couldn't really hold up to it. It, it kind of comes and goes. A lot of it has to do with the transfer though. Mm. There's a guy who used to do the transfers at Alpha Cine, and he's notorious for being so conservative. He was uh, a really right. good guy, but he just he fucked all the reds and he fucked all the blues and the greens, and it's just super flat and milky. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons the next short films are so vibrant is because me and Ryan were at the color correction wheel there. Mm-hmm. That's why we would just blast it out, like right. overexpose shit on purpose. And then dial it in all the weird. That's why you'd have so much green and so much red in pile driver or in a little form because it's actually overexposed on a really dark day. So we were able to like blast it, but since the sky was so dark, you know. Right. And we were shooting 250, so we get away with it. Mm-hmm. Where the Oregonian was all on 50, so we were just barely getting away with oh, it. Oh, man. Yeah. It was daylight though, or not? Barely, because it was November in Seattle. <laughs> so it's all, Oregonian's all completely underexposed. Uh, Almost all of it. So then, like, so that, so just by working at the lab, then you started hearing about this thing called magenta. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Stuff totally. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then plus work with Ryan. Because then it's like, I mean, what do you think, what drew you to all of that stuff to where, I mean, there's no reason to have, uh, there's plenty of good filmmakers that shoot very straight. Yeah. Well, I, I never was influenced by films. You know, when I made those early movies, I was just influenced by ideas that I had. And I never saw a film or a filmmaker that I was like, I want to be like that guy. I never saw that until I started working at the lab and I saw all these like blue-collar uh, experimental film guys. And the most important guy is a fellow named Christian Palmer who went on to produce some of my films later. But he made this film that really blew my mind called Collie and the Lamb and Ryan shot it mm-hmm. and we had the 16 millimeter print at work and I had never seen anything like it and we'd seen uh, uh, how do you say the, the famous um, Dolly Bunuel one on the, the Andalusian dog yeah yeah, no, yeah. Uh, I'd seen that I'd seen all that stuff and it was cool but uh, nothing affected me like the Collie and the Lamb Wait, and, is it in color too? Yeah, yeah. sixteen color, and and like that and was you saw it projected. Which yeah, is the big difference. Yeah, at the place that I worked, and and then I saw all these other experimental films that we made there, and those are the films that really influenced me. And the fact that I could just reach out to the guys who made them, mm-hmm. it felt super organic, and it felt like a secret world. It was like, okay, I can't. I tried to go big, and no one liked it. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna hang out with these guys and make, make these. And then right around that time, I saw the Todd, Todd Rohal short films as well. Mm, and that really, right. that really was something. Like uh, Hillbilly Robot? Hillbilly Robot, Knuckleface Jones, Slug 66, mm. I think it's called. And I hadn't met him yet, but Megan produced his, his feature film, uh, The Guatemalan Handshake. And, right. And that's how I eventually met him, because Megan and I have been friends for so long. Mm-hmm. So. And that, that, that's, yeah, it's something about 
it's interesting when people see hey, you can only live in a few cities and grow up being so influenced and seeing things the right way. Yeah. You've got to find the secret world everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> you got to find it. I wasn't getting it from uh, what they called classic movies. I sure liked a lot of them, but I never felt influenced stylistically. Right. I, I was just like, oh, that's a great movie. <laughs> I'm not trying that until I saw the film Heartworn Highways, which is the James Saplatsky documentary mm-hmm. on the Texas music scene in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I actually saw that the day before we shot Little Farm. Oh, really? And I was like, okay, I got this idea. <laughs> and Ryan was totally down. He knew exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and, and then he ended up loving that movie as well. Mm-hmm. And so. then, um, so then he made The Rambler. Yeah. As, as a short. And then at that point you were like, were you thinking, okay, now I can make a feature yeah. again? I, it's kind of funny because you'd already made two. But. Yeah, but I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't really directed. I, I more or less co-directed it. I was... Mm-hmm. I, I really loved the opportunity to put my ideas in Poltergeist and Jerk Beast, but I wasn't any good at executing it. And Brady was really good at his. Uh, we weren't good at filmmaking, but we were good at finishing movies, which which to <laughs> which us is meant something. something. That's to huge. A, that meant something to us. Yeah. Uh, and so the, yeah. just the fact that you can finish something and people will see it, like man, that's a big part of it. And that's what we kept telling ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> So then by doing the shorts, you just felt better about like it was getting so back easy. into the feature. The shorts was so easy. Yeah. It was just like, we shoot this in two days or one day, and then right. you're done. And then we'll take our time with the edit, but whatever. Yeah. And then, I, you know, honestly, when we made those first films, we were very unaware of film festivals. Mm. We had heard of Sundance, we'd heard of Cannes, and maybe we submitted to Sundance, but it wasn't like we, you know, right. we were just trying to four wall. You know, that was really the, right. the goal. Yeah. So. Yep. No, I because I knew about you because you were in the band. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because I knew I knew Popular Shapes, and I knew the intelligence. Yeah. Didn't know you guys crossed over, but then Nick McCarthy was in a festival with you in that's Seattle. That's right at the Seattle Film Festival. Right, and yeah. he's like, oh, I think this guy is coming through town in his band, but he made this film. Yeah, he's like I like that band. That's weird. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah, not that you have to know somebody to get in, but. That was just weird. Well, because you didn't like them. You didn't like Pile Driver at first. We didn't get in. No, I didn't like Pile Driver as much. So, yeah. <laughs> like, you didn't like it. I don't care. No, no, you know. Oh, you know how it goes. Oh, yeah. I like it. There's just <laughs> not enough room for everything. <laughs> it was long, too. It was like. It was, it was half, half and half. I didn't get myself out of all this stuff. So, uh, no, no. The biggest thing was we could have probably played at Vegas, but I think by the time I saw it, I was already a little old. Oh yeah, I mean it and had a, so, it, it played Seattle, and I was like, whatever, that was good enough. Yeah, yeah. Because so it by played, time, yeah, one real and uh, Seattle Film Festival. So if something, it's that sad festival game. If something's two years old, it's gonna yeah. have to be so amazing and not have shown anywhere, and then you can kind of do it. It's a dumb, annoying thing that a sit part of the system. But then I think you made Little Farm like almost. Yeah, right after it, yeah. and then and then the Rambler right after that. But it's funny because Pile Driver still plays because word gets out that I have this thirty-five print in my closet. Oh right, the short. And like Jim Healy played it a couple like a yeah. year ago out in Wisconsin, and mm-hmm. it played uh, just probably a couple years before that in uh, North Carolina. Oh, People great. just ask if, if I'll ship them that thirty-five print if I still got it. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then and then like that story is probably like the most story story <laughs> that you got. Uh, again, no, no, no offense to the other ones, but uh, oh, yeah. but that one, or maybe like that's 
I know, you know, everything I'm going to say is going to sound dumb. Because I was going to say, like, oh, well, oh. you created a world, but you've definitely created a jerk-based world. This is maybe, like, the most movie movie. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I had I had taken some time and watched a bunch of movies. <laughs> I had. I, I kind of figured out like, who, who I liked and who I connected yeah. with. And at the time, I was really into the film MASH. I was really into the film Don't Look Now. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, uh, and I really, I, I sunk into every Nicholas Rogue film. Yeah, that's like that's a lot of character development. That's a yeah. lot of story and cool things happening. For me, I, I was way into his 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 events and his in his visual style and his mm-hmm. audio. That's really what stuck with me more than the character development. But his character development is something special. Yeah, it's, it's just unusual people. Yeah, yeah. And then. Uh, so then that's when you wrote Rambler? Or did Rambler sort of, you have a couple of things? In- yeah, I wrote some horrible-ass thing that Megan was nice enough to say she liked. <laughs> she was still writing the off For the hours. short. No, I had this like idea about a scientist who created the machine that records your dreams, and it was going to have this Freudian bent, and it was uh-huh. such shit. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad it nothing So you wrote it. a feature script before you made the short? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I did. And then, uh, and then that's how uh, I kind of had the idea for the scientist with the dream machine. And I wanted to make sure the dream machine didn't work because, in my mind, the attempt at making a feature film about a dream machine that did work didn't work. So now I'm going to keep that character, but everything he does has to be junk. It can work a little bit, but it's going to have horrible repercussions. <laughs> right. So it meant something to me on that level. So I just connected my, you know, my drifter and my scientist and my very sick woman. <laughs> right. And do you get uh, the actors you get, at least at that point, friends? Like, how do you convince people to do the sort of weird stuff that they're doing? Well, we had figured out our it, within our circle of knowing people who could do a performance mm-hmm. and who couldn't. Um, so since we made those two short films, we knew who to reach out to for certain roles. And then if there was a role we couldn't fill... This thing called Craigslist had been invented that what didn't right. exist at the time before, right? So it made it a little bit easier to to locate a guy, yeah, you know, or a girl. So, but then, uh, but then, still on set, like, I mean, Lindsay's a good actress and um, always game, but she's still got to like puke on you and yeah, <laughs> do all this crazy yeah, shit. Yeah, she does, and I don't. I think I might not do that to her anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep it fun on set, though. I mean, what, is yeah. there a secret? I've been told I'm super relaxed. I've been told I'm probably more relaxed there than in regular life. <laughs> oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think I think it's just like a like a defense mechanism I must have. It's like I know we're doing this high wire act, so I got to stay really mellow. And I right. think um, I think people people like that. Yeah, just treating people okay. Yeah, making it fun. I mean, it must be a little fun. Yeah, it's fun, and but it can be crazy. Like I know my internal battle during the Oregonian was an intense one because I didn't have an AD. So I was mm-hmm. doing my own AD stuff, but I had to be really cool with everybody. So I didn't want to stress anybody out, get a bad performance out of them. Mm-hmm. But given the experiences we'd had with all that other movie making, I, I was ready for it. I just knew I didn't want to do it again after the Oregonian. I never wanted to be the one man show. That's right. not even fair. It wasn't a one man show by any means. I just didn't. Want you just to... had more jobs than usual yeah. on the film set. Yeah, as everybody did on the set. Yeah. And so then, was there one thing that you were kind of like, okay, I'm going to go make a feature again, and I'm going to do it this way? Yeah. Yeah, it, it happened after I moved to California. Uh, we had made the, the short film, The Snake Mountain Colada, here in California. That's right. Actually, after we made your lunch film. 
Right. So I made your lunch film. That was the first thing I did in L.A. Oh, cool. And it, and it introduced me to Buzz, my editor, who I've worked with ever since, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and D.P. Dave, who ended up shooting The Rambler, mm-hmm. even though he didn't shoot um, Desert Movie for your lunch movie. Right. So. <laughs> then, but then, uh, so then Collada, how did that help you? You were just like, you were just getting really into the swing of things. Yeah, I just was trying to meet people here in L.A., and I wanted to see what they mm-hmm. could do. So I knew I made a bunch of actor friends and a bunch of hippie friends and a bunch of musician friends, and I wanted to bring it out. And um, so we made the short film, The Snake Mountain Collada, uh, on Super 8, because I no longer worked at the lab, so I had to mm-hmm. downsize to Super 8. <laughs> Um, the the um, I like it sounds like like your dream came true moving to Hollywood. Yeah, it did. I was able to do the scummy little movies I was making over <laughs> right, there right. down here. That was all I needed. Have you been to the sign at all? Have you have you hiked up to the sign? I did once. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. It's not like, it's not glamorous. No, it's dirty. Yeah, it's and dirty. It's, it's surrounded by that fence, so you can't yeah. walk up to it. But then you feel like, oh man, so many bad things have happened here. Ooh, <laughs> so many. And I think if you even touch the fence, there is like an electronic voice that comes on and tells you to get go away. Oh really? It's like a trespassing voice. Because I remember we like, I think we had just put our hands on it. Maybe we rattled it or something. And wow. like, you are trespassing. We should record that. It's probably pretty. I mean, it is weird enough. And then you're behind the sign, which doesn't look glamorous. And then there's the smog. You're just like, I, just, I don't want to pee here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty weird up in those hills anyway. Yeah. Then, um, so then after Colada, you're like, okay, I got people. Yeah. Even though Snake Mountain Colada didn't play like Sundance or South by, it played a lot of the festivals that um, played Little Farm and the Rambler. And they were excited about it. And people were weirded out about it. And um, and it's a fun one too. But then you've really got your style down of yeah somewhere in between a experimental and uh, yeah genre. And I was trying to make the Rambler feature at this time because I had some good contacts at Anchor Bay that were super interested, and I was like, wow, that would be a home run. But it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I got to say, I was definitely influenced by Ty West's movie Trigger Man that I saw he, he made before um, mm-hmm. House of the Devil. I knew he just went out into the woods and made a movie under his terms and it was a, it was a success for him. Mm-hmm. So that, that had an influence on my thinking of going out into the woods and doing it my way. Right. And, uh, did you actually write out a feature length script that many pages? Or? Well, it's, <laughs> it's 44 pages, <laughs> <laughs> but you felt okay that that would do the job. I knew cause I was pacing it, you know, I was pacing it like everything was going to be long and, it was it was very much influenced by Stalker and the Mirror and the and the strange events that unfold just by walking through a space mm-hmm. right. in unknowable territory, you know, like a dream. So that's what um, that's what I was trying to get done with the Oregonian, and I I filmed that whole thing with a stopwatch around my neck because I needed to know exactly how long each shot was. So I would shot list it, and in my list, I would say this thing should last 45 seconds, and before you know it. You've basically budgeted your film budget, you know, how much film you need because you can add up all the time you need here. If you just say, okay, we get two takes of this, two takes of this, maybe three here, one here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you can calculate the whole goddamn thing. So it was done really uh, in a way that I don't think a lot of people would have patience to do. 
I would just like time the shot. Okay, 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 okay. And then I had to call cut because we were running a film. There's no no movie. Right. Yeah, that's efficient. <laughs> yeah, it was something I had a lot of experience to lead up to thinking that way. Right. So. And then you just get uh, you get everybody in the groove then. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. You know, we most of it's handheld, and we just kind of run and gun. I don't, you know, people kind of. We had some producers that weren't on set for a lot of the time, and they would look at the shot list, and they'd be like, oh, my God, this is, like, over 200 setups. And I'm like, it's not really a setup. We're just turning the camera a different way. It just reads a certain way. Was know? there lighting or reflectors? Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. when, when needed. But, you know, that was the beautiful thing about Kodak 50, 50D. It just it doesn't need it. It's If you're shooting mm-hmm. outdoors in a nice space, you just shoot, and it's there. Right. You know, and sometimes we bounce some gold off Lindsay. She looks good with the gold reflector, but um, mostly it was just Stone Cold 50, and then we would do our own color correction on the Da Vinci and get what we needed, as wow. we learned on Little Farm. Right. Yeah. And then so did things come out the way you wanted it, the way you imagined it for Oregonian? Yeah, I mean, I learned somewhere along the line to not imagine anything all that clearly. <laughs> Just to just to imagine just enough and bring all the ingredients and see what it really tastes like when you get there and then just eat it <laughs> and then and then yeah it when when we got the footage back for the Oregonian it did look like I thought it was going to look after we I wasn't surprised by the way it looked right, right. so yeah you worked with it yeah yeah because there was no monitor there was no anything yeah right. it's just there you go we lost one roll wasn't a big deal right yeah. And you like, and it's a little, it's a little, uh, it flies by a seat of its pants. And I think, like, I like the characters, and I like just like it's just like you're spending time yeah. in a dimension. Yeah, yeah. Which is nice. Now, does it bother you that people want more than that? The people want, and I mean, of course, yeah. every, there's going to be. I don't mean like the worst people. Like, what does it all mean? But like, do you feel like people still got the experience you were hoping for? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I know it was it was kind of rough afterward because I felt like uh, people were expecting that horror movie, and when they saw what it was, it wasn't anything like that. Mm-hmm. So then I took some grief, but then after that initial blast of bad news, it just levels out, and you stop. People stop writing bad things, and they and you only find the the people who discovered it and they're excited about it. Yeah. So I do think it found its people, um, and I think that they're stoked about what it is we did um i don't know if i could have given them anymore like for me i put it all into there like there's so many strange events in that movie yet people tell me nothing happens in it like there's <laughs> things in that movie that you, that are in no other movie right yeah if you there's you could probably make a really good list of films that people say like not i mean you know stalker obviously yeah. these classics yeah I'm sure people were bummed out by Stalker. Oh, yeah. They're like, the zone, what the fuck's the zone? I know. You didn't tell me what the zone was. You know, it's like, but then if you just sit there and you're like, well, this happened, this happened, then this guy did this, then this guy did yeah. this. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of events in that movie when they hit the waterfall and all that shit. Yeah. It's fucking. But it's okay to like, I mean, whatever. A lot, plenty of people are smart. I'm always like going to like the, the, the negative part here, but it's like <laughs> it's part of the story here. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely part of the story. There's plenty of people who are just like I enjoyed spending time in a room with this thing and it was the only thing on in front of me. You yeah. know? It's uh and that, which always makes me wonder every film 
but also like with this kind of stuff like it's definitely a different experience if you're gonna watch it at home yeah with the lights on yeah probably not as good of a sound system because you worked hard on the sound design yeah we wanted to separate ourselves there in a way Mm -hmm. because we didn't know if what we were doing was going to work um but we knew we could create a big sound design because me and buzz both had this kind of obsession with with that right and um, how much time did you take doing the sound it was we did it all the same time of doing the picture so it, oh, t- okay. it took it. We did it simultaneously. We, we scored it and, and did all the sound design and all the just while we went. This so is, while you're shooting, you're actually doing it on set. Oh, I'm sorry. Or no, editing. no. In, during the edit, it yeah, was yeah. it wasn't a separate process from that. And I think I think we cut for probably six or seven months. Oh wow! And that was just like after work and like on the weekend. And Buzz had a lot of big jobs because he was working at a trailer house and yeah, movie trailer. House. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, we just got in there when we could. And I think it was six or seven months, and then we made that Sundance deadline, and it worked out. How how um, would it depend on the scene, or did you find yourself creating sound and then editing to it? Um, yeah, it, it, a lot of times we, we would find like the types of images we wanted to put in there, mm-hmm. um, but we wouldn't know the order necessarily unless we had the right sound on that movie in particular. Like, sound really inspired us to make the right move. It's like, okay, here's what it looks like. What's it sound like? And then I'd play a little thing on the guitar, and then maybe we'd turn on a generator and bash a wrench against an empty bomb that he had in his backyard or right. whatever. Um, and just find the sounds of the scene, and that would really determine the order. So that thing really is driven by sound. really mm-hmm. is. That's not to take away what Ryan did, though, as a DP, because he fucking brought it. Yeah, it just you know. pulls it all together. Yeah. Every, all that together. Yeah. Then, um, w- uh, does the Oregonian have any secret messages that you can't believe people didn't figure out? Uh, I just think it's a real circular odyssey about somebody who enters the unknown and has a certain negativity about it, and then by the end, she loses what it is that made her that way, and um, she goes through an intense character change, and I wish people would just allow it to be that. Mm-hmm. And everything else that they think it is, they, it can also be that. I just, I just wish that they would check out the character arc that we were really studying there a little bit more, because I think that that's really the key to the film is Lindsay's performance. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's a weird thing where you know we live in a time where indie film is often criticized for not having enough female leads even though everyone wants that strong female lead. Mm-hmm. And here we are, we gave him this crazy fucking female lead, and no one gave us credit for that. No one ever said that. Oh. And I was like, well, here's the interesting female lead who goes through hell and does these, makes these choices and is in these environments and does things. And, and yet that's not good enough for the people who are looking for the... Which is another reason I hate indie film. Because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. When they see it, they don't know it. And and, and it bums me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then it's also just if you try to be a little weird, and this is part of being in the avant gutter, yeah. then people are like, I, I want it to be even weirder, even weirder than this other film I saw. It's like, well, it's not, it isn't a race. It's not a race. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't able to make a... Was it the Beguiled? No, what's the what's the thing? Um, that Clint Eastwood film. No, I fucked it film. up. I fucked it up. What's the black and white movie? Um, the Beguiled's weird too, but, but not like this. What am I thinking? What's the the guy who made Shadow of the Vampire? Oh, Begotten. The Begotten. I didn't. Right. I didn't make the Begotten. I wish right. I could have. Right. 
you know that is all visceral that, visceral that's what i wished i could have i don't wasn't that good but i did something <laughs> and i'm like i'm sorry i didn't well you did it your way too that's totally yeah. fine yeah i didn't fulfill those people's who love that movie i mean some of them really like yeah both films but yeah yeah anyway we're being too negative so uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you find like uh, was there something about um doing the feature though this time that was especially like like you're like oh okay it worked right this time um no <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if it was a success i mean it was a success for me that's what know? i mean yeah though. yeah i mean in the oregonian was a huge success for me also no, that's what I meant. The Oregonian. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. This was huge for me, even though it was a bumpy road. It was like I directed a movie, it got an audience, it got a distribution deal. Mm -hmm. um, modest as it may have been, it was still cool. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, that was huge. It was like, all right, I'm a, I'm a gamer now, and that was cool. Um, and then to, to yeah. keep your work resume up to date, yeah. what gig did you get when you moved to L.A.? Oh, uh, working in a vault of a Blu-ray QC facility. <laughs> and um, So you watch Blu-rays and make sure they look okay? I don't as much as everybody else who works there. I kind of sit in the vault and receive packages and um, talk to the clients about mm -hmm. how we received these or sometimes I'll you know, download it over the wire or whatever it is they want. Um, right. and then, and then we deliver that to the testers and then they, uh, see if the thing works out. Right. <laughs> and did the people there know you were making like a whole feature film? Um, no, they didn't. I, I kind of keep to myself at the job. Yeah. Uh, I have a few people that I, I'm pretty good friends with, but no, I don't, I don't say stuff. Yeah. Just go to work. And yeah. Do um, there's enough people here that, that talk about their stuff. It's just, yeah, yeah, nothing that's no good. But then when it got into Sundance, um, even though I'd already had a film at Sundance when I worked there, uh, the Rambler short, but um, then everybody was like aware of it. You know, people like read about it and like, yeah, we did Calvin, we just read you out a movie in Sundance. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Plus you had to ask for time off work. Yeah, yeah. So you could go. Yeah, yeah, I did. So then it's like, it's not like the Oregonian is opening doors, but it seems like Rambler was a little bit easier to make. Yeah, well, I mean, we were trying to make the Rambler, and it didn't work out, so we made the Oregonian. And mm -hmm. then um, when the Oregonian played Sundance, Anchor Bay made an offer to purchase it, and a nice one, and we were stoked. <laughs> and then the last day, mm -hmm. they pulled the offer. Oh. On the way to the party i got the news you know the closing night party at sundance and everyone's so jovial about the awards they've won no, wait the wait so you were there with oregonian yeah i'm sorry did i fuck up no 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 i'm just trying to so you're there with oregonian yeah and anchor bay is going to give you money for the script of rambler no they they were purchasing the oregonian oh they're purchasing the oregonian yeah. okay and and that seemed huge to us we we're like oh my god because our, our yeah our press screening was horrible and all the industry people walked out of our screenings sure, yeah. uh only the weirdos remained and we're like oh man we got this, this despite all that we got this deal fuck that's awesome and i knew they knew about me because we'd been discussing the rambler so i thought it was you know connected mm -hmm. anyway they had to pull the deal and that was that's a real sucker punch man <laughs> totally. and then you know like hey yeah it's just, we we did sell it now we haven't mm. um 
it's a good, really good learning experience. So anyway, that did yeah. not ruin our relationship with Anchor Bay. It, it honestly opened a, a weird dialogue of them asking about the Rambler feature film, and um, and then they decided to uh, do a, a, an MG if we could get somebody like Dermot Mulroney involved. Because I was going to ask you, like, so a person who makes films like uh, Little Farm yeah. and Jerk Beast and uh, The Oregonian, then how does the conversation start? Like, we like what you make, but we need someone famous in it. Yep. Yep. It's just up front? Yep. Absolutely. They, yeah, uh, it's just as we all picture it. Like, yep. you, if this, this guy equals money. Yep. And uh, I needed a guy that could play the guitar. I needed a guy that looked good. Yeah, and uh, they brought up Dermot. They did not. Um, that was uh, a suggestion of David Gordon Green, mm. and that eventually. Who, who did Anchor out. Bay bring up, or anybody? Or they were just like, get someone. Um, I can't. Remember. I remember. I remember Josh Lucas's name around in there. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have been horrible, but it wouldn't have been right. I remember Steve Zahn. I think he read it and hated it. Uh-huh. Um, That's too bad. Uh, but then you know and. Because it's funny, to be fair, yeah. I, I somehow missed out how big of a romantic lead Dermot became. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't watch any of that stuff. No, right, because what, Young Guns, that whole scene, of course, yeah. I was like in high school or younger when that came out. And I l- liked it for what it was. I and really did, yeah. Living in Oblivion. Yeah. And Great then, little indie film where he's really funny as the, the DP. He, yeah. Oh, is he the DP? He's I thought he was a sound guy. Is he the DP? No, he's the DP, and then he gets something in his eye, and he has to bring an eye patch. That's right. That's what it is. He's amazing. And then, not his fault, purely my fault, I did not catch most of the rest of the films he was making through the 90s, but apparently big films where he's yep. the romantic lead, which is kind of awesome. Women love him. So just by putting him in, there's some other human that says, here's a certain amount of cash. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's data that these distributors have that they do not like to share. They Interesting. Can, um, determine who's worth their money and who's not. I think I could figure it out, though. Yeah, it's not hard, but that's not the only way to do it. It's yeah. just, you know, like I think Landho is a really good example of a movie with uh, – uh-huh. Some folks that people don't really know that was able to sell and, and market. Uh-huh. Maybe it has something to do that it's with the two older folks. And I know that old people make indie film profitable in a lot of ways, uh-huh. like Best Exotic Marigold and that kind of stuff. So yeah. maybe that had something to do with it. But I still think it's a good example of a movie that can be made and purchased with no famous people. Uh-huh. But did Gordon Green already work with them? Yeah, they made that movie Undertow. Oh, right. And that coincidentally, was a bigger it, had, film. it had Josh Lucas in it as well. Yeah. Um, and so he liked Dermot and just said he's Yeah, he said guy. he was great, and he said he, he, yeah. he should really be a lead in one of your movies. Yeah, he looks great. He fits it perfect. <laughs> yeah, and Dermot really liked The Oregonian. He was way into it. And, uh, That's crazy. Uh, yeah, I don't even think he'd seen the short of The Rambler or anything. I think he just liked The Oregonian. He's like, let's do it. That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. And then... Um, and then it seems like that had to be the most fun to make of all your stuff. Ooh, it was pretty great. I mean, it was stressful, but it was less stressful than the Oregonian. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was there was a machine behind it that I knew that if if I had like a bad day, the movie would get made. It'd be bad if I had a bad day because it would really take like a shit. But like, <laughs> this movie's getting made either way. 
because right. Dave is like a pro DP. And a lot of times DPs, they've been around so many bad directors that they just have this default setting of, okay, when the director goes away, I'm going to start directing. Like the yeah. director may be standing there, but they're not there because they're overwhelmed. And then the DP start directing. Mm-hmm. So I knew that he had that in him, but I'm pretty on top of it given the sort of rugged upbringing I've had. I've got an idea for every shot and every sound and everything. Mm-hmm. So, and Dave was right there with me. Um, he was very, very good with our gaffer. Um, Theo, Theo was amazing as well. So we had this camera department that couldn't stop. They were amazing. Uh, had a great set of locations, had mm-hmm. great effects, great actors. It really it was a dream come true. I mean, we only yeah. had 20 days to do this whole high wire act, but like, it's amazing. Yeah, that's still yeah the indie way. So uh, if I can, if I have, I think I have a short mental checklist of just what seemed what had to be really amazing. Uh, filming prison boxing. Yeah, that was good. And the prison was easy to get into. Yeah, the warden. She was really nice. She was like this hippie. She uh, yeah, this hippie lived right on the grounds there. And she, how much were you around real prisoners the whole time? They're all real. Mm. They're all real, and they let us. And it, she thought it would be like a good activity for them to be a part of. And uh, so like yeah, we we asked him who who was a boxer, and there was a couple guys who were fighters, and mm-hmm. we put the gloves on him and just kind of made this wild boxing situation. And and then I asked one of those guys if we could shoot in his bunk because that was what the um, warden requested that we could shoot in their cells if they allowed us to mm. and like yeah so we kind of made friends with some of those guys and they let us full access Crazy. really cool yeah but there must have been like was it minimum or maximum or it was medium? it was m- minimum to medium yeah minimum mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. Yeah. so a real prison but obviously you could be near these people oh yeah yeah oh yeah real. i mean there were there was no negativity was just like these yeah. guys really wanted to be a part of it because it was like i mean you're, you're in fucking jail they got nothing going on yeah they can come be in this movie like a lot of people just want to be in the movies right and and these guys you know they're in jail and they get that opportunity so have they seen it yeah one or two guys have they one or two guys tried to find me after they got out <laughs> did they like it um i don't know i don't know <laughs> And then um, second on on my mental checklist of why it must have been fun was Roswell, yeah, New Mexico. Yeah, it's pretty cool, man. It's like life's a little bit slower there. A lot of a lot of dropouts. Whose idea was it to film there? Well, that was um, producer Cristo's uh, idea because he had met line producer Carl uh, Lucas, mm-hmm. who was a Roswell native, an Iraq War vet, and a radio DJ. So that made him a god in Roswell, and he happened to be a line producer. Oh, wow. So we could get into anything, and he showed me all the cool places between Roswell and Dexter, and, um, and that was really cool. He's, he, he, he made the movie as much as anything. Wow. That Carl Lucas. And then um, number three is that it had a lot of the same stuff as the short. Yeah. Yeah, it did. But the script changed quite a bit since you made the short. Yeah, I went through a lot of weird incarnations. I, I, I think I kind of learned how to be a good writer doing all the many drafts of The Rambler because I had so many years to do it. Yeah. I think I learned Yeah, you, I learned to follow my instinct because everybody knows when they've got something in their screenplay that's more or less just plugging a hole. You know, it's not a good part, but it gets you to the next part, and it's 
you don't feel good about it. Mm-hmm. And if you have too many of those, your movie is bad. Mm-hmm. And I think I, my early screenplays had like mostly those. <laughs> mostly just bad parts to get me to the part that I thought that mattered. Right. So you got to get all those bad parts out and, um, or as many as you can and try to limit your mistakes. All right. And then um, last but not least, it's just the amount of fascinating character actor people that are in it. I mean, yeah. Dermot, Dermot's great. I think he does so much without dialogue. I like that a lot. Yeah. I think Lindsay's great and doesn't get quite, well, kind of abused. Yeah, her arm gets ripped off. Huh? Yeah, that happened. Okay, so, but, but she's a trooper. Oh, God, yeah. And really fun in the film. Yeah. And then it's populated with just these really amazing looking dudes. Yeah, I mean, I I did my best. Uh, we didn't have a lot of choices. Basically, we got a little menu from one of the agencies, the O agency out in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And um, we st- I just started looking at pictures of people, and I said, I want to meet that guy, I want to meet that lady, I want to meet that guy, I want to meet that lady, I want to meet that guy, I want to meet that lady, I want to meet that guy. And I told them what uh, what role they were auditioning for. And they come in, and, and then... Um, read and i'd be like actually you'd be you'd be good for the other guy so why don't you why don't you learn these lines yeah a lot of times that's the way it was done we had we had about two days to cast it so wow that's all in two days yeah but i I was able to decide who i wanted a a week or so in advance and then they all just kind of came in and and we had to make decisions quickly but that's okay that must have been a fascinating two days of people though (laughs) dude yeah there there was really strange people happening in there that that guy didn't really have a hook though right No. no but he's fascinating looking. he's fascinating and and i didn't have him take his shirt off in the audition i just knew i wanted him uh-huh. and then like i was like well you you go take your shirt off and he's like hell yeah i'll do full frontal <laughs> <laughs> i was like okay well we'll oh, keep that in yeah. mind <laughs> and uh but also the guy who's like the the fight promoter who's pretty yeah he came, great timing he came in and read for the scientist mm-hmm. and um it didn't work but I, I said you know you look a lot like the guy i had in mind of this mm-hmm. so he did and uh he came in and he was amazing yeah you know so and the scientist was also in new mexico yeah and he was the first audition of the whole deal oh and he and he just blew me away yeah. james katie he just couldn't believe it yep and so now do you and Lindsay have a good shorthand for working together yeah but i mean since we're in a relationship she can get frustrated with me that's for <laughs> sure <laughs> And yeah. The, yeah, but if then, I'm not telling her enough, she'd be like, this is not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Does she like come back to you like, here's what I need because I've worked on a lot of sets? and Never. No, it's all No, it's just chill. like in the moment. Like, I don't mean me in more. a bad way, but more like, you know, if you're working, you know, if you're, you can get away with working loose. But yeah. if somebody's used to working a certain way, that's different. Yeah. You know what's weird is we do work loose, but since our movies are on such a tight schedule, we also work really rigidly. Mm. So it's like I have a shot list. I have a plan of everything. She knows I'm kind of more of a visual guy than I am an actor guy at mm-hmm. this point. I mean, I'll, performance is most important, but I'm going to want it, want to sell the vibe just as much as the performance. So I mm. got to get the design and the thing right. So sometimes I do forget to give her enough direction and sometimes she'll get a little mad <laughs> but it's okay um she's never uh she's not the kind of actor that compares experiences she wouldn't be mm. that way she's not like oh something like was like this on 
you know, uh, fucking Hatfield McCoy. Hatfields and McCoy. So it's got to be this way here. She, right. She's not that way. She really rolls with the punches. I recommend working with her. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, and then at the end of this journey uh, with the Rambler, like it seems like you still had a lot of the similar audience reactions. Kind of funny, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yeah. In my mind, it's like, look, you weren't just waiting till you got some money. And you did always have Lindsay, but another actor who's worked in big stuff. Yep. And then suddenly you were going to make something different. No. <laughs> I've been, <laughs> yeah, that's not how, yeah, it was, I've been making different stuff since Poltergeist. Right. <laughs> so I think one of the best answers I heard you do was at a Q&A where you said, uh, where somebody asked you that question, what do those things mean? And you basically just asked them back, like, well, did, do you care enough about them that, you're still thinking about him? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we're just flooded with content. And if you can be somebody with uh, movies or, or music or whatever that you can remember, or if I could be somebody somebody could remember, that's, that's all I need out of the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody with a distinct voice. You know, musically, I think I wanted that, but I don't know if I ever quite got there. You know, I think I always wanted to be in that band that you knew right away, whether we were popular or not, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I ever quite got there. But if, um, it's not even like entertaining people. It's just like, uh, well, you, this made you feel something. Yeah. It's made you feel something. And then, uh, my little Mark is, uh, worth something to somebody. If it's worth something to somebody. Well, yeah. I mean, if people can remember it and they, and they, and they want to revisit it and, uh, and that, that means the world to me, honestly. Um, the premieres are cool when they make you feel special, you know, they fly into <laughs> different countries or playing Sundance. I mean, that's that's great, but all that stuff's so temporary and, and it burns up so quick. If your movie can stick in someone's mind for a, more than that premiere period, it's it's what it's all about. And it's something that all the critics overlook and undervalue. For them, it's all here and now. And, and they don't know about the people that find it years later and find you on facebook or somehow got your email <laughs> yeah. well yeah. and how many times you see a film and then later on you're like oh wow it's actually i do like this film yeah i just didn't know it before yeah i mean it's happened to me for sure uh you know with the oregonian had that weird uh odyssey that followed where you know after the after the release that sundance did of it the uh, sundance art services everybody across the nation could watch it and uh and then those gals in uh, like indiana remade it in their oh yeah what is that story i don't really know i know they just kind of sent me they just i don't know if i was googling the oregonian or if they sent me it all i know is we came across the youtube of them remaking the film so it's teenage girls yeah remaking the oregonian yeah weird yeah really weird yeah (laughs) and what did they do the green suit yeah Wow. But not the whole thing. They didn't make the whole thing. No, they said the rest of it's coming still. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's that's really a special certain sort of thing. Yeah, so it's like that, and then and then other things I've read that, you know, it, it totally has found its place, and it continues to, because it actually still gets quite a few views on Hulu a mm-hmm. month. And uh, so I'm really proud of that little guy. It's, uh, it's pissing people off, but it's also finding the right at the same time. <laughs> And so now um, you're just trying to make another feature? Yeah, I got these two. I just don't know what's going to win, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's the same situation I think I've always been in. It's where I have like these two movies, and there's momentum with each, uh, and then I just got to see which one, which one becomes the thing I make, mm-hmm. um, and I'll go either way. But meanwhile, still like working with the Blu-rays and shipping them in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was able to take a year off when I made the Rambler because it paid pretty mm-hmm. good. But if I wanted to save any of that money, uh, my options were pretty limited. So I just decided to go back to the job, which has been mm-hmm. not bad at all because I doesn't limit me from doing anything. So it's cool. No, it's very Bukowski. Yeah, <laughs> I can I, I can always get out of it and take my meetings or go shoot something or whatever. Right. So it's good. I mean, a lot of our friends are so broke, unfortunately. So I think a lot of the, um, I mean, you go into debt or you could just get a little job. And depending on what kind of job you have, uh, it, it could limit your creative output if it's a, if it's like mm-hmm. a mind sucker. Yeah, yeah. You have to be there yeah. a lot. <laughs> but, like, you know, if you find the right job, it's really good for your career. <laughs> shipping, a shipping gig is probably pretty good. It's good as long as they don't depend on you too much being there, because you got to be a guy who can leave and come. That's come true. And go, because uh, yeah, you don't want a job that needs you there all the time. That's right. Let's leave with that advice. Yeah. For the girls in Ohio, yep. Indiana. Yep. All right. Thanks for doing this. Thank you.